Every culture across the nation has some kind of history of witches and witchcraft, and America, truly being the melting pot of so many cultures, is no different. I went back as far as I could to find out how our culture and traditions around witches came to be, and thanks to Joanne Bergman requesting this episode just in time for Halloween, you get to hear all about it. This is a two-part topic, because even though we are babies of the civilization, there is still so much, and I don't want you to miss a thing. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougeret, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen then to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. Let's just cut to the chase. You might be a witch if you are older, you are younger, you do not have a family, you do have a family but are cantankerous. You are an unmarried woman. You are a woman who is deemed odd or ill-tempered. You are a man who slept with other men. You are suspected of immoral behaviors such as abortions, sex work, cursing, and missing church. You might be a witch if you are considered too smart. In 1656, one such woman was hanged for being found a witch, and it was discovered that, quote, she had more wit than her neighbors, end quote. You might be a witch if you are too familiar with herbs, medicines, or animals. If you didn't cry during the trial, witch, you've used threatening words. You could also be a witch if you don't bleed when you are poked with a sharp instrument. If you do bleed but don't make any noise, you're a witch. If you appear in someone else's dreams, definitely a witch. If you float when you are thrust into a body of water, you are a witch. If you are lighter than a stack of Bibles, if you are heavier than a stack of Bibles, if you were exactly the same weight, you might be okay, but probably not, because only a witch would have known the exact weight. If you can fly, you're a witch. If you can control nature or speak to animals, witch. If you cannot recite scripture, mainly the Lord's Prayer, the devil is obviously controlling your tongue, therefore, you are a witch. If you speak it flawlessly, the devil is obviously controlling your tongue. You are obviously a witch. If by your touch you can make someone ill, and by that same touch you can make them well again, you are a witch. If you admit to enjoying or seek out sex, you are a witch. You stand in the way of growth or progress, witch. You do not share the popular opinion, which you are worth more dead than alive, which 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 but why and these all of these accusations have been used to prove that someone was a witch. Who made up these rules, and who decided they were worth killing for? One out of five men could be convicted of witchcraft. But over the course of time, the majority of the accused were women. In Europe, over 100,000 people were convicted of being witches, 
and somewhere between 40 and 60,000 people were put to death. And just when things were beginning to die down across the pond, they were only getting fired up here. Depending on your influences, most, when they conjure up the image of a witch in their mind, usually go to the Wicked Witch of the West version from The Wizard of Oz, or Witch Hazel from the old Bugs Bunny cartoons. But since these early visuals, every kind of witch imaginable has emerged. We have good witches and bad witches, young witches and the iconic old hunched-over witches, everything from the fates in Greek mythology to fairy tales used to frighten children into behaving, witches who are glamorous, witches who are housewives, witches who are teenagers. Even today, our witches are, for the majority, female. I love how LitHub puts it. They write, quote, And while there is a broad spectrum of witch stories out there, there is a through line common to them all. Witches are women whose embodiment of femininity in some way transgresses society's accepted boundaries. They are too old, too powerful, too sexually aggressive, too vain, too undesirable. End quote. And yet, I ask, why? What were their influences? The inspiration? Today, we learn about the origin story of the iconic witch. Once upon a time, it was perceived that the female race was magical. In stories, they can be goddesses and oracles, healers and bringers of life. They were powerful and benevolent, compassionate and fearless. They were protected and respected. Well, that dependent on who you talk to. So how does it all get turned into the visage of witches? I'll tell you. Pandora. Going back, as far as I could, I came to the Greek story of Pandora. She was beautiful, loving, and caring. Her name means the all-gifted. She was created by a handful of the gods, and Zeus bestowed her as a companion to Epimetheus. As her dowry, she was sent to her groom with a large pithos, which was later translated from the word jar to the word box. She was given one rule. Never open the box. Epimetheus was completely enamored with his bride. They lived happily together, and his only complaint against her was that she kept pestering him to open the box. She couldn't possibly get in trouble if he opened it. Epimetheus, who is usually portrayed as not too bright, actually heeded Zeus's order. One night, she could stand it no longer. She was not acting out in evil or malice, merely curiosity. She opened the box. As soon as the jar was opened, out flew all manner of abominations, evilness, hate, crime, war, poverty, pain, disease, hunger, hatred. But there, hanging on the edge of the jar, remained hope. Pandora did her best to gather the evil spirits and lock them back in the box, but they would not go. All the commotion woke her husband, and she tried to hide her guilt by slamming down the lid of the box which trapped Hope inside. Epimetheus says to her, Look what you have done, you silly woman. You have brought wretchedness upon the heads of humankind. At least open the jar and free the last little creature, so that at least we may have hope. Pandora is to blame for mortals' never-ending age of trouble and strife. 
Greek mythology characterizes women as a whole as, quote, deceitful, manipulative beings, the downfall of men, created to wreck chaos and pandemonium on earth, the catastrophe of mankind, end quote. Ouch. And so Greek literature happily continues to give us witches. Such as Circe, a sex-crazed enchantress who knows her way around herbs and potions. With her melodic singing voice, she is able to lure men to her island and enchant them with her spells. She is best known in literary history for her part in Homer's The Odyssey. Her big playback moment was when she turned Odysseus's entire crew into pigs. <laughs> oh, relax, they don't stay that way. The main goddess of Greek witchcraft would be Hecate. She rules over the crossroads and can work both good and evil. She rules over her priestess, Medea. Medea has a gift of second sight and is best known in the stories of Jason and the Argonauts. While beautiful and alluring, and she isn't shy about using those qualities to get her way, she is a little on the crazy side. Lamia, another Greek beautiful woman, was under constant attack of jealousy from the goddess Hera. Every time she would give birth to a child, Hera would cast a spell forcing Lamia to kill it. After only so many times of that, Lamia went mad and began stealing babies from other women and eating them. From this wickedness, she became hunched and disfigured and eventually became known as the Bogey Woman. Classicalwisdom.com offers, quote, One of the most famous witches in Latin literature was Erichtho, from the Pharsalia by Lucan. In this epic, she desecrates the corpses of the dead and murders people. She is shown as even terrorizing the spirits of the realm of the dead by screaming down the throats of their corpses on earth. It was widely believed that witches murdered children and used portions of their bodies for spells. Witches be crazy. Women in Antiquity writes, quote, Classical literary portraits of Roman witches and witchcraft demonstrate an emblematic relationship between gender and magic. Generally, Roman witches were old, frightening, and immensely powerful. An interesting contrast to Greek witches who were depicted as beautiful, youthful seductresses. These contrasts highlight how magic, and particularly female practitioners, was frowned upon in Roman society. From classical portrayals from Roman sources of witch and witchcraft, Female practitioners are depicted as powerful icons that challenge and break both physical and societal boundaries of the natural order. End quote. In some instances in classic literature, witches were remembered for their bodily lust, ravenous sexual creatures. Quote, Having witches be so sexually crazed flips the script in that instead of males assuming the active sexual role, it was the women. These interesting rehearsals in classic literature do not go without a catch, however, as these stories also warned that a sexually active woman would be the cause of impotence in men. In fact, Hermes tells Odysseus to heed Circe's advances as having sex with a witch may make him quote-unquote dastardly and unmanly, end quote. In other instances, such as Shakespeare's Macbeth, he portrays the Greek fates as the wayward sisters. They are a trio of witches, and the bard claims they appear to be hag-like with chappy fingers and skinny lips, weathered and so wild in their attire. 
They are used to give prophecies which, spoiler alert, aren't really true visions, but Macbeth's own thoughts portrayed back to him. They only reveal his true future when they tell him of his imminent fall. These wayward sisters are a big candidate of the witch character we will come to know in the future. Hunched over and creepy, stirring their cauldron, cackling in high-pitched wails and adding toads to their potions. Never take what they're giving. They probably taught the wicked queen about magic apples. Women were believed to be connected with nature, while men were perceived as the basis of culture. Therefore, witches also had an ability to control nature, as Ovid's Medea. She invoked nature to cause streams to run backwards, among other things, concocting chaos as an imbalance of the natural order of things. Some were driven by sexual attraction, while some witches had more selfish and evil reasons, usually money or a gain in power. Witches, then, suggest how men viewed women in positions of power. Many of the modern-day fairy tales, most of Disney's library, came from old folk tales with dreadful witches that, had Walt not tamed them, would have given children nightmares for life. Even his version of Snow White's evil stepmother-slash-witch is an example of how witches use their power and knowledge of poisons to get what they want. If you want to know more about these origin stories of the classics, check out my past episode, number 39 called Once Upon a Time. The Roman poem of Horace depicts two sorceresses with pale skin, long nails, and wild hair, which are very similar to what pictures of witches look like today. They are shown burying a wolf's head under a full moon to conjure up the dead and make them do their bidding. (laughs) According again to Women in Antiquity, they write, quote, the expansive corpus of curse tablets drawn from across the Mediterranean lands and spanning a millennium provide the best evidence for the practice of magic from 5th century BCE to 5th century BC. This is referring to curses and other forms of magic. End quote. The stories of witches and witchcraft from this era are abundant, as are the curse tablets mentioned. This was a pre Christian era, pre Christ superstition and witchcraft were accepted as a way of life, and the way women were treated during this time frame was abominable, so they sought other means to find justice. Women in Antiquity writes, quote, An illustration of the supernatural by which female practitioners used to influence relationships as a mode of self-preservation, from exacerbation to demanding annihilation for their victims, The context for Roman practitioners believed it required magical action rather than real action. But witches performed other services too. The Romans used witches to give them chants, potions, and recipes for every little thing how the crops will grow, how their body feels, if they will defeat an enemy, if they will have a healthy child, if they will come into money, if they will curse their neighbor, punish a thief, corrupt a business change jobs, change the odds in a sport to their favor, to fall in love, to fall out of love, to make the one you love that doesn't love you back never love anyone else. In as early as 5th century BC in Greek history, it gives us examples of the witch using language of prayer from well-established religious rituals to establish the typical contract, like binding relationships between a person and a deity, 
the essence of Greco-Roman religion. She passes on her instruction to her client, the practice of writing curses or spells on lead, tin, papyri, or gemstones to fill her desires. The spellbooks that survive from Rome and Egypt include recipes and sample texts for creating all kinds of curses and spells. They were the one-size-fits-all spells so that you can read off the incantation and then you would merely insert the name where there's a blank space in the script. Journalist Britta Agger says, quote, The ancient love spells show every combination of genders, men attracting women, women attracting men, men attracting men, and women attracting women, in about that order of frequency. Men attracting women with love spells are easily the most well-represented variety, and many of the recipes for curses found in spellbooks treat this configuration as the default, while we only have a tiny handful of female-to-female love spells. Curses in which women attract men are reasonably common, but tend to be less violent. Some of the more anguished curses are those that try to avenge murders, thefts, or unrighted wrongs, and unrequited love. End quote. Side note, in the Roman culture, there is no such thing as a male version of a witch. And so, in this fashion, the lure of witches took hold, and will honestly never let go, because everyone from everywhere has wishes things that they want that might be just out of reach, or circumstances they feel that are beyond their control that require a supernatural cure. Ronald Hutton, author of the book The Witch, adds, Magic is about human beings working power for their own ends. Religion is about deities and asking them for favors, and that's perfectly okay, as long as you have the right kind of deity. By the 20th century, there would be another resurgence of witches. Not not of the witch-hunt kind, though. But our pop culture divided their presence into two. The Greek, the elegant, beautiful, mysterious type. Think Veronica Lake in I Married a Witch, or even Lily Munster or Morticia Adams. And then the Roman style. Gnarled and hunched, frightening and formidable. Think Wizard of Oz, or Angelica Houston in the movie The Witches. But then... As with every generation, we take these iconic characters and make them new. The witch costume that is available every single year in every single costume aisle that includes the conical hat and striped socks did not come into vogue until the 1700s and 1800s, long after the time period we are covering today. Christianity spread across the world and other deities became a sin. And then a crime. Witchcraft becomes synonymous with devil worship. It was believed that to believe in witchcraft, you rejected the teachings of the Christian religion and made deals with the devil in order to receive magical powers. Since anyone denouncing Jesus Christ was siding with the devil, this was reason enough to get the Puritans' panties in a twist and go on a rampage to cleanse the earth. Susanna Lipscomb writes, quote, Although belief in witches was orthodox doctrine, following Exodus 22.18, the 16th and 17th century witch trials were the result of witchcraft becoming a crime under law, and witches were prosecuted by the state. In England, witchcraft became a crime in 1542, 
a statute renewed in 1562 and 1604. As such, most witches across Europe received the usual penalty for murder, hanging, though in Scotland and under Spanish Inquisition, those witches were burned. Pliny the Younger, a lawyer and writer in Rome, would script, quote, Everyone was afraid of witches and their spells. Romans began the first known witch hunts in the imperial period, long before the Christians began burning witches, end quote. Hello everyone, it's time for a Bag of Bones sponsor break, and this one highlights Lumi deodorant. But today, we are not talking about their amazing deodorant products. If you didn't know already, Lumi also creates body wash. Makes sense, right? And you'll be happy to know that the same care that goes into the deodorant carries over to the body wash line as well. Lumi's acidified body wash is clinically proven to work three times better than ordinary soap. Lumi has a low pH, making it perfect for sensitive skin, and it eliminates odor in all the places, promoting healthier, softer skin. If you haven't already tried the body wash, consider using the Bag of Bones link in the show notes to give it a try. It has a money-back guarantee and free shipping with any order of $25 or more. Plus, you help support an awesome podcast. Hint, hint. If you know you stink or you take showers regularly, this product is for you. Give it a try today. Click the link in the show notes. Just from this brief historical outlook on witches, and the more we think about how fear of the unknown can spread to dangerous levels, we can begin to see how the litmus test for who is and what is a witch is being formed. Greek mythology, Roman poems, Shakespeare's plays, witches were a central villain. It's interesting to see, as we go along, the shift when fiction becomes more fact in their eyes. And hopefully, as this bizarre story unfolds, I've given you enough of a foundation so you can see the links back to where they draw their quote-unquote proof. If we were to take these stories and poems as truth, and witches did have this kind of power, then mere mortals would be in a world of hurt, and ridding them of the earth should be a priority. Classicalwisdom.com writes, quote, One of the most distinctive of all Roman witches were the so-called strix, or owl witches. They were women who embodied the screams of birds of ill omen, who would devour the flesh of children. They often abducted infants and substituted them with straw dolls. Classical depiction of witches is much influenced by male misogyny. Those whom many elite males referred to as witches were often wise women whose help was often sought by the poor and other women. It's likely that many of the representations of the witch was motivated by male fears of female sexuality and were used to justify the existing patriarchy. End quote. This is where I introduce you to the Strixologists. This was a club of men who sat around discussing the realities of witches, demonology, and how that all mixed with theology. For the longest time, the slant was that there were no real witches, until a peasant named Stedelin confessed, while being tortured, I might add, that he was part of a devil-worshipping club. He was accused of killing crops and livestock, creating hail and thunderstorms, making horses crazy by touching their hoof, 
and taking milk from a cow in order for the wife of the couple of whom the cow belonged to miscarry a child. Pretty heavy accusations, and he was tortured until he confessed to being a devil worshipper and a witch. Whew, that got everyone in a tizzy, and one of the members took it upon himself to write a book to warn everyone of the dangers of witches and witchcraft. Johannes Nider researched and came up with his book, Formicarius, around 1436-ish. This book brought their new club, Strictology, into the light as the authority on all things witches and demons and just how dangerous they are. Their most prized student of Formicarius had to be Heinrich Kramer. His zeal for righteous condemnation coupled with loathing and disdain for women could almost be single-handedly blamed for the massive amounts of deaths due to witch hunts across Europe and then the States. He took the mere whispers of fear found in the Formicarius and turned it on its head. Heinrich Kramer was a fire-and-brimstone preacher from 1484. The story goes that he was one of those skeezy kind of guys behaving inappropriately around women, and because of his place and authority, many believe that he could, uh, encourage women of his congregation to come to him for additional enlightenment. But then there was Helena. Heinrich believed himself to be in love with the young maiden and made advances. She rebuffed them. For every advancement, she would turn him down. Kramer was furious, indignant, humiliated. How could she possibly not rush to his bed? Huh, she must be a witch. He formally charged her with witchcraft and sought to take her to trial so the magistrate would find her guilty and sentence her to death. After all, it says in the Bible in Exodus 22.18, quote, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live, end quote. And since the Bible was now law, justice, in Kramer's eyes, would be served. However, that kind of backfired. Not only was his case denied because he had no authority, but Heinrich Kramer was laughed out of town. He chose to take his revenge with the pen. He holed up in his private den of wrath and wrote Malleus Maleficarum, translating to The Hammer of Witches. This became the how-to guide to find, interrogate, and confirm a witch. His doctrine taught that witchcraft is very real and dangerous because the devil is very real and dangerous. Witches enter into a pact with Satan that would allow them power to perform, quote, harmful magical acts, thus establishing an essential link between witches and the devil, end quote. Authors of Witchcraft and the Magic in Europe, Volume 3, and Carlew and Clark, claim that Kramer's purpose in writing the book was to, quote, explain his own views on witchcraft, systematically refute arguments claiming that witchcraft did not exist, discredit those who expressed skepticism about its reality, claim that those practiced witchcraft were more often women than men, and to convince magistrates to use Kramer's recommended procedures for finding and convicting witches, end quote. During this era, the belief in witches and witchcraft was widely accepted. According to the website girlmuseum.org, quote, the church saw witchcraft as superstition, a pre-Christian belief that needed to be corrected, or a mere illusion. 
Though witchcraft practitioners could be accused of heresy, it was in the context that they were not fully worshiping God as they should, not because they were casting spells. End quote. But before 1400 and before Kramer was humiliated, it went largely unprosecuted, mainly due to the lack of evidence or proof. Those that would be found guilty were usually punished with a public penance of shaming or a day or two bound in the stocks. These are those wooden torture devices that are actually pretty tame in the whole torture scheme of things, but the accused would have to stand with her head and both hands fit through holes on a wooden beam, creating a T-shape. Here she would have to stand for however long her punishment was required, only receiving food or water from the kindness of someone in the village brave enough to bring it to her. The church accepted the belief that magic was gifted. You either had the skill or you didn't. It's almost as if it was acceptable, so long as it wasn't used for harm. But when those recipes and prayers and curses began being written down, allowing other not-gifted people to participate, it became something that anyone could learn. That's when things became a problem and had to be stopped. And just in time, Kramer writes his book confirming everyone's fears. So before anyone else could chase him out of town, Kramer went directly to the Pope himself to get his stamp of approval. He filled the Pope with fear and raged on how it needed to be put to a stop, promising that his book would reveal how to keep things from getting out of hand. The Pope had given the M.M. his explicit authority. In 1484, Kramer was given absolute permission and authority to prosecute what he deemed to be witchcraft in general. The book became the handbook of secular courts throughout Renaissance Europe. The canon reads, quote, Toil to exterminate the sorceress by explaining the appropriate methods of sentencing and punishing them in accordance with the text of the aforementioned, thereby achieving their extermination, End quote. During this time, 14 other books about witches, in addition to Kramer's, were released. With the release of Kramer's book, things took on a whole new, sadistic, brutal turn. Side note, later in the century, the church actually rebuked the book, saying the book's recommendations were unethical, illegal, and inconsistent with church doctrine. But the secular views had already taken his words and actions to heart, and it was too late. Witchcraft became widely accepted as the real and dangerous phenomenon. Witches became heretics to Christianity, and witchcraft became the greatest of crimes and sins. Quote, Within the continental and Roman law, witchcraft was a crime so foul that all normal legal procedures were superseded. End quote. Sociologist Nachman ben Yehuda explains that before the understanding of science, people looked for ways to explain what was happening in the world. Plagues, storms, crop not seeding, livestock dying. It made sense to them to fall back on what had been written, story or not, to give them a sense of understanding and some kind of control. He would write, quote, what could better explain the strain felt by the individual than the idea that he was part of a cataclysmic, cosmic struggle between the sons of light and the sons of darkness? His personal acceptance of this particular explanation was further guaranteed 
by the fact that he could assist the sons of light in helping to trap the sons of darkness, and thus play a real role in ending the cosmic struggle. End quote. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougere with Bag of Bones. I just need to interrupt this episode for just a quick second to make a sincere request. I've discovered that the best way to help a podcast to grow is, firstly, by word of mouth. If you are enjoying the Bag of Bones content, be sure to tell your friends about it. And then secondly, is through our reviews. Same concept, you're telling others how much you enjoy listening to the podcast, but you're reaching people that you don't even know. And with every new rating and review, the podcast platforms will then share Bag of Bones with other possible listeners. So again, if you enjoy Bag of Bones content, please share your views with others by leaving a 5-star rating and review that will entice others to give us a try. Thank you so much to those who have already done this, and thank you to those who are about to. Okay, okay, my time is up. Back to the show. Thank you! The entire first section of Malleus Maleficarum shreds women. I mean, worse than the Greek mythology shreds women. If Kramer had his way, all women would be destroyed. Trial records that have survived confirm that Kramer believed that women are, by nature, corrupt and evil. He writes that he believes most women are, quote, doomed to become witches who cannot be redeemed, and the only recourse open to the authorities is to ferret out and exterminate all witches, end quote, which essentially means all women. Men could become witches, but they are more often lured by power and not their weak beliefs or lusts. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> he writes, quote, For men, being by nature intellectually stronger than women, are more apt to abhor such practices. End quote. Excuse me while I giggle just a moment. Kramer commits five whole chapters of how to rescue men who have been bewitched in various degrees and forms. So if they're not weak, why do they need five whole chapters to get them out of the mess they are supposedly too intellectually strong for? In his book, he places himself as the expert on all things witches. He goes through step by step in how a trial will go down. Coaching the witnesses, cross-examination, what to do if this, what to say if that. He literally tells how to do every single thing word for word and sometimes, in parentheses, he adds the why. For example, quote, The accused N of such a place was sworn by personally touching the four Gospels of God to speak the truth concerning both himself and others, and then was asked whence he was from and where he originated, and he answered from such a place in such a diocese, asked who were his parents and whether they were alive or dead. He answered that, they were alive in such a place or dead in such a place. Asked whether they died a natural death or were burned, he asked in such a way. In parentheses, he adds, Here note that this question is put because witches generally offer or devote their own children to devils 
and commonly their whole progeny is infected, and when the informer has deposed to this effect, and the witch herself has denied it, it lays her open to suspicion. End parentheses. End quote. I do love a good courtroom drama as much as the next, but is the other team allowed to object? Allow me to answer that. No! The accused was not entitled to legal counsel, could not have witnesses to testify on their behalf, and had no formal avenues of appeal. I'm almost embarrassed to say that I read a good bit of the book because I was fascinated with my 2022 point of view, being able to look back and believe with all my heart that they, the writers and readers of this document, believed this that it really was a matter of life and death that these creatures, mainly women, be found and destroyed. It was a bit unnerving, though, when he would take scriptures and says, yes, sure, the Bible does say this, but since we're dealing with a witch and the devil, we're allowed some latitude because of that. He bent the sacred oaths and belief systems in whatever ways necessary to get the conclusion he wanted. This was the art of deception at its finest. Even when he was directing the judge to release the accused when there seemed to be no definitive evidence, he allowed that she could be brought back in at a later date and tried again. Here's a lovely example. By his own acknowledgement of the law at hand, he recognizes, quote, There are no laws or ministers of justice which can proceed to the avenging of so great a crime with no other warrant than vague charge or a grave suspicion. Can you hear how he's so upstanding and stalwart? For it is held that no one ought to be condemned unless he has been convicted by his own confession. End quote. So that part, that's the law. But lest we be deterred by lack of confession, the use of a myriad of torture devices may be used to help jog the accused memory. Torture and deception were perfectly acceptable to get the appropriate responses. Quote, and when the implements of torture have been prepared, the judge, both in person and through other good men zealous in their faith, tries to persuade the prisoner to confess the truth freely, but if he not confess, he bid attendants make the prisoner fast to the strapado or some other implement of torture. The attendants obey forthwith yet with feigned agitation. Then, at the prayer of some of those present, the prisoner is loosed again and taken aside and once more persuaded to confess, being led to believe that he will, in that case, not be put to death. End quote. Torture! And for those who don't know, the strapado is the tool of pain, where the victim's hands are bound behind their back and then they are lifted high off the ground by a pulley system. The weight of their own body and sometimes additional weights that were added usually resulted in dislocated shoulders, sometimes death. He writes, quote, We may say that it is as difficult or more difficult to compel a witch to tell the truth as it is to exercise a person possessed of the devil, end quote. Even though details are included in his work of how to exercise a demon, you could tell it was not his practice of choice. He wanted, in all things, a conviction of the death penalty. He continues, quote, But if the prisoner will not confess the truth satisfactorily, 
because he suspected the truth differs from the prosecutor, other sorts of tortures must be placed before him with the statement that, unless he confesses the truth, <coughs> their truth, he must also endure these. But if not even thus he can be brought into terror and to the truth, then next day or the next, but one is set for a continuation of the tortures, not a repetition, for it must not be repeated unless new evidence is produced. The judge must then address to the prisoners the following sentence, We the judge, etc., do assign you such and such a day for the continuation of the tortures, that from your own mouth may the truth be heard, and that the whole may be recorded by a notary." End quote. Kramer had tests on top of tests, tortures, deception, all the things to get the conviction he was after. And do not be fooled, men, quote, if he wishes to find out whether she is endowed with a witch's power of preserving silence, let him take note whether she is able to shed tears when standing in his presence or when being tortured. For we are taught both by the words of worthy men of old and by our own experience that this is a most certain sign, and it has been found that even if she be urged and exhorted by solemn conjecturations to shed tears, if she be a witch, she will not be able to weep. Although she will assume a tearful aspect and smear her cheeks and eyes with spittle to make it appear as if she was weeping, wherefore she must be closely watched by the attendants." This would be one of the tests that would catch many of the accused in Salem. During the quote-unquote trial, they were merely asked questions. It didn't seem like it got too intense. The judge asked the same question repeatedly, I guess hoping he would trick her. Are you in league with the devil? I am innocent. But rarely did she shed tears. Quote, a witch's inability to weep can be said that the grace of tears is one of the chief gifts allowed to the penitent, for S. Bernard tells us that the tears of the humble can penetrate to heaven and conquer the unconquerable. Therefore, there can be no doubt that they are displeasing to the devil and that he uses all his endeavor to restrain them, to prevent a witch from finally attaining to penitence. End quote. Kramer would then warn, that while torturing women under examination, the torturer should not, quote, make eye contact with her, as her evil powers might cause the torturer to develop feelings of compassion, end quote. Michael Bailey, author of Battling Demons, claims that most of the women accused as witches had strong personalities and were known to defy convention by overstepping the lines of proper female decorum. The stories we have are all based on Kramer's belief that women worshipped in large nocturnal assemblies where, quote, various social ills were performed, such as promiscuous sex, naked dancing, and gluttonous feasting on the flesh of human infants, end quote. And if you were lucky, dancing in the right ways and ate enough infants, quote, at the climax of this festival, people at the time believed that the devil himself would appear and participate in an unbridled orgy with all attendants. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, quote, the malleus was accepted by Roman Catholics and Protestants alike as an authoritative source of information concerning Satanism and as a guide to Christian defense against the acts of Satan. End quote. In 1602, 
Lord Chief Justice Anderson noted, quote, The land is full of witches. They abound in all places, not as a symbol or figure of fun, but as a deadly threat to life, livelihood, and divine order. End quote. By this time, hundreds of thousands of women, and yes, even men, have been tortured and murdered. And yes, I say murdered because their crimes were nothing more than the rabid imaginations of men who had the power. Kramer continued preaching and writing until his death in 1505. He would be lauded and praised in the Catholic orders. He was invited to counsel on procedures and practices of the nuances of performing witch trials across Germany. Side note, in addition, most of the creepy fairy tales we recognize today come from Germany. Germany would hold the record as the most witch trials and deaths, and the most deaths of children convinced to be witches. Coincidence? I think not. I do give Kramer a lot of power in building up the witch hunts with the explosion of several other witch books available, but it also helped that other unexplainable incidents were happening to play into the fears of the masses. When disaster happens, people want answers and are willing to accept some pretty bizarre theories. At this point in history, we have the out-and-out battle between Christian religions, Catholic and Protestant, and then suddenly, this plague hits Europe, crop failings, and winters so cold it froze over major waterways. The easy scapegoat would be the devil, and by proxy, those who do his bidding. According to Jeffrey Burton Russell, author of the book Witchcraft in the Middle Ages, quote, 20 editions of Malleus Maleficarum were published between 1487 and 1520, and then another 16 between 1574 and 1669, end quote. Again, with Heinrich Kramer's encouragement and step-by-step -step guide, Europe and all its countries played into one of the worst, meaningless genocides in history, holding space, or perhaps gearing up, to take their anger out in the major world wars. During the European witch hunt, as I mentioned earlier, the lives of 40 to 60,000 people were lost, the majority being women. And they, literally, wrote the book on torture and cruelty as a means to an end. This episode helps us to set the stage to take witchcraft to America. I am happy to say, spoiler alert, that the levels of fear, torture, and cruelty towards those suspected of supernatural powers, mostly women, does not escalate quite as dramatically in the new colonies. But entirely too much damage was done nonetheless. But apparently, we were saving up our mass annihilation for another race. Not to be left out, of course, we do have some dabblings in the witch hunts and trials, and I hope you'll join me back here again next week for part two to understand just where our dabbling got us as a nation. This episode is probably so much more than Joanne Bergman requested, but <laughs> that's just me. I get a little extra when I start digging into research. I hope it exceeded your expectations as well, in a good way. And I hope you'll come back next week for part two. In the meantime, I wish you all a safe and happy Halloween. If you choose to witch it up, I'd love for you to share a photo in the Facebook group. Enjoy your spirits responsibly, maybe don't sign any contracts this week, and be generous with the big candy bars. I'm Elizabeth Bougeret. Until next week, then.
Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.